verses 48 through 59. We're going to read this together. My voice, I'll be telling you, I'll have to be honest with you this week, is weak. I'm wrestling with allergies and some mutation form of the Ebola virus or something. No, I'm just joking. Uh, we can still talk after service, but I'm a wrestling. So I'm going to start reading. I'm going to start reading with you. Then I'm going to drop out probably like the end of verse 48, just so I can save a little voice I have. So let's jump into God's word today, and then, then we'll jump into the sermon right after. Verse 48, let's start. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. I honor my father, who sees it So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That is God's word. Let's pray together and you may be seated. Father God, thank you so much for your word and thank you that you have appointed, made, and forever fixed Jesus as your unique son and the king of the world. Thank you that he illuminates through his teaching and through his person things that we need to know, although sometimes we don't know that we need to know them. But then today in the sermon, as we're going to look at his teaching and his promise, he says stuff that only he can say and keep and fulfill. And that is that he promises for all those who would look to him, know him, and cling to him as a way that he determines how that should look like, that that can lead those people to a life that is free of death. Free of death, not just physically, but free of death spiritually. Father, I pray that through the preaching of uh, your word this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would allow the truth of this promise to come through clearly, but not just in a way that just tingles our minds, but stirs our hearts. That brings those of us who do know Jesus to a better understanding and significance and a love of him and obedience to him and appreciation for him, but also those who may not know him in the way that he says it means to know him, into his kingdom, face to face with him. I pray that you would do all that, not because I'm a good teacher or a good preacher or those of us that are particularly good listeners, but because the Holy Spirit is working through his perfect means, his word. So I pray that you accomplish these things for our joy and for Jesus' glory, that he would show off himself this morning. It's in his name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. We have been going through Jesus, a mini-series in John's Gospel called, I know, Introductory, I Am the Light of the World. You say, where did you get that from? I got it from Jesus. 
So I Am the Light of the World is a mini-series we're looking at inside of our series through John's Gospel called The King's Life. And this week, I want you to know that this is the last of the three-week series. We looked at the first week. We're taking John chapter 8 and just chopping it up so we can kind of put our arms around it and really understand what is Jesus saying, what is significant to us, and to our mission as a church to show off this Jesus that we find in John chapter 8 to the world. And so we looked at the first week, Jesus saying he is the very factor, the illuminator of spiritual realities to both this world, the religious world, and, and the irreligious world. He's the light of the world to everyone. And then last week we looked at how he says that that light of the world, he shined or shone, if that's the right word, shone his light. And in so doing, he, he sets people free. He shows who's a real follower of his and who's a fake follower of his. And then he says, this is how you become sons or children of God versus not being children of the devil. And this week, I want you to know, is the last week of the series, the mini-series, and I want you to know this is all tied to Jesus' first claim. He says, I am the light of the world. That's in John chapter 8, verse 12. And that is tied to what we're getting into this week. This week's sermon is this. It is how to live or living a deathless life. Living a deathless, death, I can't, it's hard to say, deathless life. Jesus is going to make a promise. It's one of the most staggering promises that you can ever hear. Matter of fact, I want to read it to you first before we dig into the sermon. And I want you to just hear what he says. Jesus says something to us that should just blow our minds if we're paying attention. Now, I realize we come here with different things in our, our, in our thoughts or in our minds and our hearts. But just listen to this promise before we jump into what he says. Jesus makes a promise, he says in his confrontation, he says, truly, truly, that's verse, this is verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, that's just the promise. Now, if you understand what Jesus is saying, I hear some wiles. That's appropriate. Jesus is making a claim or promise that if you understand who he is and you will respond to it according to how he wants you to respond, people will never see death. And he says, that's a promise. Now, think about all the promises that you've heard. Promises in life are very important. Matter of fact, promises and our interaction with them really determine how we live our everyday lives. I'll give you a couple examples to start. Have you ever had a friend who made you a promise? And you rearrange your schedule, your time, maybe some of your money to fit that promise. <coughs> Friends make promises to us. And if we believe that promise, we'll arrange our lives to it. Isn't that true? You say, okay, some people say, I promise, if you're to be a good friend to me, I promise I'll take you to an Indians playoff game. Now, for me, that's a very good promise to hear, because I like the Indians. And I, I believe we're going to have two championships in Cleveland, not just one this year. Amen. All right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if someone made a promise, we said, Pastor, man, I'm going to take you, I promise you, I promise you, I'm going to take you to a game. I would rearrange some things in my schedule. Uh, hopefully not the sacred stuff, but some things in my, my schedule. And say, I'm going to rearrange my life to get to this promise, because I believe if I believe you, what you're saying, I'm going to bet my life on it. Promises from friends to friends. But you also have promises. Sometimes husbands can make promises to wives. Like, honey, I'm going to take out the trash. Now, nah, I don't know who without my husband would make that promise. I'm going to take out the trash as soon as I get back from doing this. You ever made that promise? You ever heard that promise? Or I'm going to treat you right, dear. I'm going to treat you better. Uh-huh. <laughs> Husbands can make promises to wives. And if the wife believes the husband, the wife will arrange her, at least hopefully, will arrange her expectation, her life for that particular moment or time that day. 
to respond to that promise. But then you also have promises that sometimes people make to God. Oftentimes you hear people say, uh, and I know what people mean, I don't think this is totally bad. People will say that this is how I came to know God in the Bible through Jesus. Is that something happened to me and I made a promise to God. And my promise to God was, God, if you would get me out of this, I will forever be with you. I will forever serve you. That's how they, they, they explain their reaction to how they, they came into a relationship with God. So people make a promise to God. And on people's part, people expect God to kind of make some other arrangements to them. See, promises are very important. If you understand the weight of a promise on a positive side, I want you also quickly to know that sometimes promises are why we, our lives are bitter, why we're disappointed. Sometimes people have made promises to us and they don't deliver on them. Sometimes the father will say, I promise I will not leave you children, and sometimes the father does leave them. Isn't that what makes divorce so sour? You made a promise before the court, in all cases, and before a certain type of clergy into a person and say, I promise you this, I will not leave you. And what makes divorce in so many times so painful is that not just the, the things that people go through, but it's really that you are saying if you are a part of a divorce, part of a separation, and breaking a relationship, you're saying, I, my promise was no good. You, re- you asked me to rearrange my life because I thought your promise was true, and in the end, it was a fraud. And that hurts. Why? Because the promise is what we arrange our life to. And when it's shattered, it becomes hurtful. Promises are very important. Promises are really, if we pay attention to them and believe them, or to what degree we believe them, is really what our lives are anchored to. See, some of us now, we have jobs. We say, I I promise I'm going to be successful. And I think one way I'm going to accomplish that is that this job is giving me a promise of something, a better picture a better reality for me and my future or my family. And your whole life has been arranged to that promise. We sit here, many of us are saying, I'm adjusting my life to a promise. This promise that I have consciously or subconsciously bought into, and I'm rearranging life. And I want you to know that Jesus, and I am the light of the world, he's going to, to hold out a promise. He's going to shine his light through what he is saying in this confrontation. He's going to say that this is a promise like no other. And if you get it, and if you believe me, you should arrange all your life to this. And no matter what promises you have made or heard before or what promises that people have let you down on, he's saying to us, I'm not going to let you down. So to walk us through this passage, I have a four-point outline, and you can follow along on your service card. And I want us to just look at this promise. I think if you want to know what Jesus is talking about, you have to know how to interact, interact with it. If Jesus is saying that this arranged my whole life, I want us to see four things about this promise, to evaluate this promise and the person giving it. First, I want you to see, well, why do we need this promise? See, promises only in our lives don't have weight in our room until we are convinced that we need them or we want them. Jesus says, I want you to, he's, we're going to look at why, should, why do we need this promise? Why did he throw this out for us to hear and read? Secondly, we're going to look at why we can trust this promise. If anyone makes you a promise, if you've ever had a promise broken before, or you have broken a promise before, or anyone offers you a promise, you have to know, can I trust that person, right? Is your promise going to be good, and what evidence do I have to now adjust my life to it? Jesus says, through this conversation, God has for us a good answer to that. Why can we trust this promise? Why would this not just be another divorce case, another betrayed friendship, another trash that wasn't taken out when you said so, husband? Not that I ever broke that promise. Then thirdly, I want us to see 
how do we get access to this promise? If, it's just, if this is a generic promise to people, the Bible can seem so far away for so many people. It's like, okay, this is an old ancient book. How do I get access to this sitting here in this room today? There is some help for us here. And then lastly, we want to say, okay, if I've gotten access to it, if I have bought into this promise, if I have risked my life on it, how do I know that my life has changed? What is life like if I really buy into this promise that Jesus has offered? So let's start here with why we need to know this promise. Why do we need to know this promise? Well, there's two reasons I want you to see in this passage, and in one's a little outside of this passage. But first, Jesus says, if I'm offering you a deathless life, I promise you, any person who hears me will never see death. Why do we need this promise? Number one is because humanity has a common slave. I'm sorry, humanity has a common slavery. I don't have on my glasses today, so I want to mess a couple words. Humanity has a common slavery. It doesn't matter what neighborhood you're from, how much money you make, your gender, your educational background, where you live currently, we all have a common slavery. You say, well, what is that? Well, in this passage, if you want to know something, if you look down <coughs> verse 53, you get kind of a, a touch of it. In verse 53, in this argument, Jesus says, are you, I'm sorry, the crowd says to Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham who what? Who died. You see that verse 53? And then he says, and the prophets, what did they do? They died too. In this conversation, the, the crowd is saying, no, we know someone named Abraham and the prophets, and they died. What's the significance of that? We're going to unpack that. But I want you to see on the surface in this passage, there's something about the human experience that shows, that just illuminates what's true about humanity, is that we all have a common slavery. What is that? It's a fear of death. Say, well, I'm not afraid to die. Well, I would say in a general sense, our culture, particularly, particularly in Cleveland, in America, is very afraid of death. How do you know that? There's several ways. There's several ways you know people are scared to death of dying. Number one, I don't know if you ever had a family member die or someone close to you, and you ever just sat with them and talked to them, or you talked to the family of someone who's dying. So have you ever known sometimes it's not until a funeral you can tell what's really on somebody's heart? Or the prospect of dying, they start opening up to you and says, I'm not sure what's going to happen after this. Or I'm not sure if this person forgives me. Or if I have regrets in my life. It seems like there's so much weight on death. Have you noticed that? It seems like when the prospect of someone dying, when someone checks into a hospice or they die, and it's like, it seems like kind of like there's some extra pressure is pushing them to reveal things they never have. And sometimes people are scared to what's next. Why is that? There's a lot of reasons for that, but one is just because we are all afraid to die in some sense. How many of us are young, you say, I'm not afraid to die. I really ever think about that. Why is it that you never think about death too much? Some of us can be naive and say, well, <laughs> you know, it's because I'm young and that's just not on my mind. What's on my mind is, you know, youthful stuff. I want to go to the beach. I want to go to games. I want to have fun. I want to build a career. I want to build a family. That's what's on our minds when you're young. But if you look at a deeper level, what's the one of the scariest things, let's say you get a husband or a wife, what's one of the scariest things that can happen? They die. As young as you are, one of the scariest things in your heart is that they die. Why? Because you're afraid of death. That's one of the scariest things that can happen to me in my life. It's one of my children or my wife. They die. I am absolutely afraid of that. It's not because I have no hope. It's just the reality of this huge monster called death. But there's another way you can know. And I want us to know, I know many of us are young. I want you to be warned by something in this passage so you won't stiff arm this passage and put it at an arm's length. 
I don't know if you pay attention to sports like I do. I'm a sports fan. But this past week, there's a man named Jose Fernandez. He was a pitcher. He, is, he was a pitcher for the Miami, um, the Miami Marlins. Thank you. They moved and threw me off their mascot, the Miami Marlins. He was 24 years old. He was a millionaire. He was a couple-time all-star. He had this amazing life. He went out on a boat with his friends, and he died. How old was he? 24. Was he successful by some people's determined success? Yes. Did he anticipate death coming that week? If I were to ask him last Sunday, Jose, you're going to live to see next Sunday, the pitch next Sunday, he probably would have told me yes. But in fact, on Tuesday, this past week, or maybe Monday, he died. See, for many of us who think we're young and death seems so far away, you say that may be humanity's problem in a general sense, but I'm not afraid of that. My guess is you are. Some of us need to take a little more time to think about the reality of death and how we interact with our everyday lives. So, number one, I want you to see we have a common slave. Matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus, he shows up to deliver people, certain people, from a slavery. In other words, he's come to set people free. Which should sound familiar because Jesus just said that last week, didn't he? He said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's in John chapter 8. Well, what are, there's so many things Jesus came to set people free, but in Hebrews chapter 2, it kind of crystallizes. He says, well, there's one slavery that you all have, no matter what you're, where you're from, that is possibly around the corner for all of you, and you may not know it, is the fear of God. He said, I've shown up to set people free of that. Why? Because you all have a common slave. And there's nothing about your human experience that changes that. Something I'm coming to offer that you need. So first is our common slavery. But secondly, I want you to see in this passage, there's something else. <coughs> Why we need to hear this promise and give it ear in our lives. <coughs> Excuse me. We need to hear this because not only do we have as humanity, a common uh, slavery, we also have a common death. What do I mean? Look at verse 53 again. Verse 53 says, in this argument, let me just try to explain it real quickly without taking too much time. Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. And he's saying at a particular religious festival, the Feast of Booth, all the way back to John chapter 7. Yes, we're, we're going to pick up speed, don't worry. <laughs> I just don't want us to miss anything. But he's saying to these people at this religious festival, he's saying <laughs> to them that there's something I have, something I'm offering you that you don't have, although you're very religious. You've gone through these religious things, but you still need something that I have that you don't get out of this. <coughs> so he said it to them, and he says, and these people don't just kind of buy in first. They're skeptical. They're not just skeptical. They're disbelieving. They reject what Jesus is saying. They're saying, if that's what you offer, no thanks. That's okay, Jesus. We don't need it. But he says, if you look into why you, what you're holding on to for hope, it's going to let you down. Well, what is it? You're holding on to your religious practice. What do I mean? In verse 53, they're pushing back Jesus. They say, we have Abraham as our father. We have biblical data behind us. Is why it's going to help us through what you're saying what we need. And they're saying, Jesus, we don't need you. We have our religion. And he says, well, let me taste your religion and see how effective it is to stave off death. Verse 53 says, Abraham died, your heroes. The prophets, they died. Something I have to say, something I'm promising, that is going to put me on a higher plane, a better offer than what Abraham and the prophets can offer you. Your religious history cannot get you in, cannot deal with this if you rest in that alone. 
devoid of me. He's saying there's a common death you all have. How do you know? Well, I'm not going to rehash it, but you know what you know what people believe when they get ready to die. You know what people if, if I ask you to sit down and talk with you and say that you're about to die next week, you know what be the first thing on your mind? You probably start somewhere in the conversations. I got some stuff to take care of, this and that. But I really want to know about this God stuff. The common reality of that your people in the Bible, that every single person in the Bible, except one person, Enoch, has all physically died. So no matter where you turn in the Bible, all these characters, where you turn in, in our city, in, all, in your people in your family, no matter what their religious history, that you're going to physically die. And so my promise should now mean something to you. You should be leaning in and listening to this. So why do we need this promise? Number one, no matter how much we try to avoid it, stave it off, push it back, we have a common death. We will all face death. Now, I know we don't like to think about it, but I want us to know that if you don't think about it, you don't see the beauty of what Jesus is offering to you. He's saying, I have something that can make death better than just the end of everything. I have something that can make death, not this huge bully in the room, but can make death seem like an ant. And it's outside of necessarily just your religious experience if it leaves me out. So we need this. So what is, what is he saying? Let's dig into his promise. Jesus says to us, he says, you need to know, number one, you all are going to die. And there's a taste of that in your culture and your life if you dig deep enough. And you're afraid of it. And you're all enslaved to that. And you will one day face it in death. <coughs> you say, well, okay. Well, if Jesus, you're going to say I can live a life where I never die. And he's not talking about physically dying. He's talking about it's a way that you can live on beyond death, physical death, and then understand true life. Now, I want to take a couple minutes to explain what is Jesus saying? You say, well, Jesus is naive. Jesus is not in touch with my reality. People die all the time. I know Christians who die, people who claim to believe in him, and they still die. They pray, they pray, they pray, and it seems like they don't get healed in this life. They just, they just die. That happens. Jesus is saying that's true. So is Jesus just being a fake salesman? Is he being another person who's throwing out a promise that means nothing? Well, no. This is what he's saying. He's saying that how you think of physical death, physical death, the severing of a relationship, is true about a spiritual reality. Where people are severed from God. See, in the Bible, you can trace it from the beginning to the end of Genesis. In the beginning, you'll see what makes one thing that makes Genesis so sweet is that God is with people and it's like they're alive. People being with God is how the Bible describes them being truly alive. What do I mean by with? I mean they actually love God, they're with him, and they're enjoying him. That is life. They're connected to him. When they want to pray, they call out to him. When they have a problem, they go to him. When they need help, they go to God, the God who is really there. That's called life, and they have a free connection to him. But if you go to Revelation, you'll say, well, what makes Revelation so sweet? The hope of Revelation is not that the road is going to be fried. It's not that people want to come back and be swooped up into the air. That's not ultimately the promise of Revelation, is that there will be a restored place where people will be alive again. There will be no more tears. People will have free access to God, and they will enjoy each other because of God. That is what the Bible says is life, and it's in a meta metaphysical, spiritual way. That's life. Well, if that's life, what is death? By the way, those two things, particularly in Revelation, they go on forever. Have you ever noticed how many things in your life seem to be so good, but they just don't end? The, the Cavs championship only lasts for one season. We got to defend it again starting in three weeks. Yes, we only get one championship per year. It seems like meals. It could be a great meal. You sit down and you're like, man, that was great. 
But then you got to get up the next morning and cook again. Or go out to eat again. <laughs> you ever notice that? It's like a slavery. You enjoy something that's so sweet. Sometimes people say, God seems so close to me. He seems so near. He seems so far. But is it possible for that to continue on into forever? The Bible says yes. It's something called eternal life. It starts in time and expands even when time runs out. He says, that's eternal life. Knowing God in that way. Now you say, wait a minute. Jesus, are you telling me it's possible to have, although you physically die, in this life you experience this life, eternal life, and then it continues until time runs out? Jesus says, yes, and I promise you, you can bank on it. Are you buying what Jesus is selling? Do you think this offer is that good? Jesus says, it's truly, truly, verse 51, if I, I, truly, truly, I say to you, he's saying, whenever Jesus says truly, truly, he's like, look, for real, for real. I'm not a used car salesman, no offense. Listen to what I'm saying, bank on this. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, if you go down further in this conversation, go down to 54, the crowd pushes back, but then Jesus says, um, Listen to what they say. This is how they respond. They say to Jesus, <coughs> he says, now we know you have a demon. By the way, this is such a crazy promise, people start cursing out Jesus. He says, are you greater than Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself to be? See, this is the crux of we can really believe this or not, which is my second point. How can we really trust this? Why can we really trust this promise? Listen to what Jesus says in verse 44 in the one packet. I'll give you a full reason. He says first, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not met him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. Ouch. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he could see my day, that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews, now this is, the, they're just on fire now. They're like, this is about to be UFC, Jews over here, Jesus over here. He says to them, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and he went out to the temple. See, the crowd is asking the same question that we're asking in our hearts. Jesus, this sounds like a hellacious, amazing, over-the-top claim. Jesus, I don't know if you're paying attention, but people die all the time. And you claim that people are going to stop dying. Jesus is saying, no, you're just thinking about death in a physical sense. I'm talking about something much deeper. But their question is the same question I have, the same question you have. Why can I trust you? Why should I trust you? Two things you can write these down. Number one, in this passage, I want you to see something why we can trust Jesus in his claim. And we're going to dig into each of them. First, we can trust this promise because of the world we know versus the world Jesus knows. Because of the world we know versus the world Jesus knows. What do I mean by that? In their response in verse 52, the Jews said to him, now that, we, now that we know you have a demon, and by the way, if you bump back up to verse 48, they call Jesus a Samaritan. 
and a demon. So these people were not only racist, they were very spiritually lost. They thought Jesus was demon-possessed. By the way, a lot of people talk about racism, by the way, nowadays. I want you to know that Jesus identifies people calling him and calling him out of his name. Jesus steps into a world that is filled with racism. He says, I have something to say that talks about that. Parenthetical, let's keep moving. He says, you can know two reasons. Number one, because the world you know versus the world I know. What are these people saying? Here's what they're saying. They're saying back to Jesus, we don't believe you. Why should we believe you? No, we don't. Why? Because people die, Jesus, and you're just not that powerful. You're not that big of a deal. See, they read the Bible, and this is what they do. They read the Bible like some of us read the Bible. They read the Bible, and they say, okay, we have people like Moses. <coughs> we have people like Abraham. We have people <coughs> like Joseph, people like David. All these biblical figures who <coughs> started from Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. They're like, listen, look at all our ethnic history. All these people, and they're big to us. These are our heroes. Abraham's a hero. Joseph's a hero. Be like him. They look at all these heroes, and they think in their ethnic heritage and in their identifying with these heroes, they have enough. And then Jesus shows up and says, that's not enough to deal with this last thing of death. Thank you. Yeah, that's not enough. I promise you something that's bigger than that, and you have to understand, number one, in your world, this idea of death is living is not a possibility. But in my world, it is. Let me ask you a question. Isn't it one of the hardest things to believe about a claim like this is because it seems so over the top? Jesus would have said to you, you know what? Here's the deal. I've come. Here's my promise. I'll promise you that you can live this life and you'll get all your dreams fulfilled and you'll die. Wouldn't that be easier to believe than you can live a life and never really die? If some Jesus would show up and say to you, guess what? Your life is going to be hard. You're going to struggle. You're going to barely make it, and then you're going to die. Would you believe Jesus? All the cynics in the room said, yeah, I believe that. That sounds like my life. It sounds like Monday through. Yeah, of course I believe that. It's life. <laughs> but Jesus says, in your world, in your paradigm, you're, living, you're leaving out the biggest factor. The Messiah, me. Now, I want you to see, he doesn't argue on, us, on the terms of what we know in our experience. Jesus says, you can believe this because of my identity. As a matter of fact, he says you're reading the Bible, which is funny, because they try to do have a Bible study with Jesus, which assumes they're going to lose if you use it to fight Jesus. He says, if you notice something, and, and, and I want you to bring this out hopefully clearly, he says, actually, if you read your Bible right, you think Abraham was enough? You can be the, 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 great, the great Abraham? You can put all your bank on him, on David? Guess what? <laughs> Look all the way down in this passage, and I wanted to let this slide by you. He says in verse 56, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. That he would see my day. Jesus is Jesus talking. He's saying, you know what Abraham was so excited about? That he would see my day. What is Jesus talking about? Jesus, I thought you were just a New Testament phenomenon. I thought you just showed up in Matthew 1. I thought your world was just kind of like, you know, these human heroes, and then people would just continue to go. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Abraham was, whatever happened to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 18, is he was looking forward to me. What in the world does Abraham see that would hint at Jesus? What does he see? 
we have to go back and put a bunch of passages together, which I did because I love you. And I know you might not want to do it this morning, so I'm just going to say, this is my homework from this week, and I present it to you. What did Abraham see? You're like, thank you, Pastor. You're welcome. What did Abraham see? That point of Jesus. You know what he saw? He saw a land that although death and decay was there, there was a promised blessing that God could change it. Although there were people who were cursed and life seemed to be hard, there was one who could come to heal it. Abraham saw in his ear when God showed up a promise of something better that was so good, not even death could stop it. It wouldn't just come to one ethnicity, it would be spread to all. It wouldn't just be temporal blessing from God, it would be eternal. He saw what the Bible would call something called the kingdom of God. He saw God breaking into humanity, bringing a, a new world in that had been decaying, and it was going to accomplish somewhere all the way down in his family, someone from his lineage, and it was going to be the game changer who not said everything you know in your life experience up until this person showing up. Now it's a game changer. You know what it's like? And this is an analogy, the best one I can come up with. It was almost as if human history, both Jew and Gentile, it was sort of like, you ever watch someone who was down really bad with three quarters left to go in a game? Just say the Cavs, because they're God's chosen team. You ever watch the Cavs, and it's like you're watching the game, they don't show up, you think there's a certain heroes in the team, and for three quarters, you're just sitting here, and you're like, I just want to say, just sit here and take this whooping? And you think the game is over, and you're like, man, just on to the next game. He's, Abraham saw a world, and we see a world, you're like, look, this whole idea of living but never dying and die, death being temporary and not huge, this is sort of like, well, if you're paying attention to the game, look all around. Jose Fernandez has died. People continue to die. Murder rates go up, sometimes murder rates go down, but people still die. And it's like, Abraham was looking at a world, it's like, wait a minute, we're three quarters in, but I know in the fourth quarter something's going to change. And Abraham was looking forward to something that he never saw, to someone he never saw, in the sense of it fulfilled. But he saw enough of it, you read verse 56, he says, that he would see my day. Jesus is like, well, you know that world that Jesus was talking about? That kingdom that he was hoping to come? The, the, the game changer at the beginning of the fourth quarter? He was looking forward to Jesus coming out of the locker room and saying, let's get this thing together. He hoped in that. And then it says he saw it and was glad. By the way, what is Jesus doing? He's saying that the hope of the Bible is not Abraham, David, any other figure except me. And your hope in this life or the next is not anybody else's except me. He's taking the argument off of circumstances and saying, you want to know if you can trust this? Let's talk about who I am. You want to know if I'm just like the rest of your heroes? Or if I'm not? If I'm not like the rest of your heroes, then you're the one. Now, this, this is where everything comes to. Jesus says, okay, let's get something straight. This is a conversation. Jesus is talking out of his lips. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is human. He has having a conversation with people. He's a human. Like, wait a minute. You're looking at Jesus. You're like, wait a minute. This is what they say. Jesus, you're a person. And by the way, I don't know, we, we read the book, Jesus, if you know the Bible, and Jesus, you're going to die too. So what do you mean people don't taste that? <laughs> well, number one, I want you to see is not only on <laughs> the world we know versus the world Jesus knows, it's also how we view Jesus, can view Jesus, number two, and how Jesus viewed Jesus. 
how we can falsely view Jesus and how Jesus viewed himself. What do I mean? Here's where Jesus drops the bomb and sets off everything in their world and hopefully, by the Spirit's work, sets it off in mind. Jesus would say, what if someone showed up and all he was 100% human, he had a conversation with people, he hurt like people, <coughs> he experienced everything in your broken humanity except sin. What if that was experienced? But what if there was one different thing about this person? What if that person had God in them? And so while all y'all sit waiting, while all y'all just kind of shiver and get scared of death, both the physical reality of death and the spiritual reality of death being separated from God, what if he had all that except he had enough God in him where he was never afraid of it? Jesus is saying, that's really who I am. And that's what he says in verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, for real, for real, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What is happening? In the Greek, we can talk about it later outside the sermon if you like. In the Greek, Jesus is saying something, look. In the Bible, God shows up and he pronounces who he really is, how God sees himself through people. And they write it down. And he says, if you go back to Isaiah, you go back to Exodus, when God shows up, he, people have wondered the same question that we wonder. Who are you, God? What's so special about you? And Jesus says, okay, I came. Yes, I was born in Bethlehem. Yes, I have a birth certificate. Yes, I cried. Yes, Mary and Joseph changed my diaper. Yes, I've experienced everything you experienced. But if you notice, unlike Abraham, I have two birth certificates. And one says, we're going to argue about that later. It says, this is my physical birthday, whenever that was. But there's another part of me where the birthday is blank. Jesus, we, we haven't met anybody like that before. He's like, yeah, now you're starting to get it. My identity, my essence is totally eternal. He takes Isaiah 41, 43, Exodus 3, 14, the God who is I am. What does that mean? I have no beginning. I have no end. I was forever around even before you. He's saying that God, Yahweh, is me. Now, if that's true, if that's true, and now God says to you, guess what? See, here's what's so interesting. Death and the prospect of dying, being separated, relationship ending, that is so hard for us to grasp because we think in size of time. Everything in our lives is time, is temporal. You go to school, there is a graduation day. For some of us, sure than others. You, you, you have a start to something, you have an end. You have the beginning of a service, you have an end. You have a beginning of a sermon, and Lord willing, very soon we'll have the end of the sermon. It's time temporal. But, God, but Jesus is saying, look, you think inside of time, but here's the problem. When God shows in the Bible, time is no problem for him. Because that's something that we made, not, not that he exists and li is limited to it. He says, I am God outside of time. I was talking to my, my grandfather before he died. I wanted to share this with you in this sermon. Because I was trying to think, like, how do you explain this? Like, wait, wait a minute, it's a man who was forever around in his identity. Like, who is this person? How do you explain that? That's, that's crazy. And this is what he said to me, and I quote. He said, if you, he said he was reading John's Gospel. He said, I said to my grandfather, Grandfather, how do you know Jesus was, like, special? When did you start understanding that he was special and you could make your life on him? He said, well, if you read, he was like, son, if, if, grandson, if you, if you read the Bible right, you'll start having the question and the conclusion that Jesus was around a lot, around a lot longer than anybody else. I was like, oh, that's good Christology over some grits and cornbread. 
Jesus is saying that I and my identity have been around a lot longer than others, and Bethlehem was not my beginning, and Calvary wasn't my end. See, what if God made a promise saying, okay, this idea of death and dying, being separated, fractured from someone inside of time, what if I could just eliminate that? What would that person have to be? Someone who is not limited by it. And Jesus says, that's who I am. You put those together, he's saying, okay, can you trust that? See, this is not a promise like a husband to a wife, a friend to a friend. This is now God to people trapped under the slavery of being afraid to die. He said, I promise you can bank on it. Just as good as God exists, you can make your life on this. You say, okay, that sounds good. I'm getting closer to buying in, Jesus. There's one other thing that you have to overcome in me, in my disbelief. <coughs> you have to show me, or I would like you to show me. It's probably a better respectful to say that. I would like me to show, in order for me to trust this fully, you have to show me, not just with your words, but with your actions. Not just in who you say you are, even if you're convinced that's who you are, when Jesus is convinced he is. Not just with who you think you are, but give me some type of demonstration. That's fair to say, right? If you demonstrate, I can trust you. Show me. You say, okay, well, does Jesus ever do that? Yes. He does. The good news of the gospel is that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus says, I can take on physical death. That's no problem for me. That's just no big deal. (laughs) Jesus physically died. But... He stayed dead. He resurrected. Christianity said, no, Jesus didn't die. He resurrected. What are we supposed to learn? The easiest one is that physical death is no problem for Jesus. Jesus is like, man, with how you see cemeteries, that's like a, a Twinkie to me. It's no big deal. That's an appetizer. But what about this idea of this physical death? What about this idea that I can live on forever and you want me to bank everything in this life on what you say? Is there any evidence... Jesus, not only just who you, think, who you say you are, the world, that you, the world as you know it, is there any evidence in who you are that shows me this? Here's something that I hope will just blow your head off of its vertebrae. Jesus dies and resurrects, and in John, we'll get to it, he has a conversation with Mary. Mary had a life to that point where she thought Jesus was the one. She thought she was seeing what Abraham saw. This is the one. This is the Messiah. Bake on him. Put all your trust in him. Not even death can stop his, his love for you. But then Jesus died. Jesus resurrects and says, Mary, I'm back. And in this conversation, Mary says something to Jesus. He says, Mary, I missed you. Well, he doesn't say I missed you, I'm paraphrasing. Mary, come here. I love you. I'm back. You can count on me. But not right now. I got to go. Well, what do you mean I got to go? Jesus? <laughs> this woman was broken and waiting for you. She had all your hopes for you. You promised. She says, I have to ascend to my God. But then she says, and your God. He says to Mary, I have to ascend to my God. And I have to ascend now to your God. On the cross and resurrection, Jesus didn't just defeat physical death. He took the separation between humans and people, and he experienced it fully. And it looked as if death would stop it. It didn't. 
Jesus' relationship in the Trinity with God was one that he would say, guess what cannot even separate God? The Father's love for me, the Son. Or even God, the Holy Spirit's community and love for us. What cannot step in that way? Physical death cannot separate it. That's no problem. But there's something else that can't even separate it. Spiritual death. What would I mean? He says to Mary once he's resurrected, he starts praying to he says, this is God, my father. Jesus said, I have a relationship with God insofar as that, although it may seem broken because of our sin, it did. In a sense, what God was saying, I'll take sin into this family and I will bear it. And it's the only time the Trinity was ever, in a sense, ever, ever disconnected. But then after the resurrection, he says, guess what? Father, we're back together now. I'm coming back to you. The Holy Spirit is with you. And then he says to Mary, he says, guess what? You are experiencing spiritual death. You think God is not listening to you? You think God is not there for you? You think God has abandoned you? You think your promise was a fake? You cannot get back to him? But then he says, after the resurrection, Mary, now my God, my Father is now yours. What's happening? In Jesus' life, he's saying that because of his relationship with God the Father and in the presence of God the Holy Spirit, he's saying now you can bank on this being everything you need because guess where I am now? I am back with the Father, and now anyone who would come back to me, come follow me, come cling to me, come put all the bank on me, now I say to them, now that's your God. Connected back to that God. What can separate it? Physical death? No. What can separate it? The cause for our spiritual death, our sin? No. What can break this promise? Is there anything that we can do? No. Why? Because now God's God, his father, has now been forever fixed to all those who will hold on to him and say, now you are with me positionally. So if God the Father cannot, if God the Son cannot trust God the Father, then we should not believe Jesus' promise. But if God the Father does now love God the Son, this promise is forever secured. Spiritual death defeated. Physical death defeated. Now he says, do you want some?" Not just that you want something, do you trust me? See, eternal life is a promise that God the Father made to God the Son. And they will never break that promise. So now he turns to those who say, okay, everyone who will listen to me, who will believe that I really am God eternal, and I can only get you to this relationship with God that lasts in this life, starts in this life, lasts in the next. The only way that you can't make on that promise is if God's not my dad. And in this argument, he's saying, no, we're up again. That's my son. That's my father. Put your aim there. The physical resurrection and the spiritual resurrection. You say, that's how you know you can trust him. Because of God's love for his son and the son's love for his father. And that relationship being forever fixed. Not even death can penetrate that. Now, you say, okay, how do I access that? One simple way. And this is the hardest thing. He says, whoever keeps my word. What do you mean keep my word, Jesus? We mess up all the time. Sure, sure we do. But whoever will say to Jesus' teaching and his identity, by God's grace, yes, that's right. That's ultimate. That's chief. Whatever he says, yes, he's right. And now I need help to obey it. By the way, obedience to Jesus is absolutely tied to assurance of salvation. 
If you are not obeying Jesus currently in your life, Jesus says, don't presume that you have this promise. But if you do, by the help that I give you, you can count on it. Do you want this promise? It makes death look small. Banking on that this life is not all there is, but it will live on forever and it will be good. You'll be caught up into the very triune community, the love of God. Do you want that? You don't get that without utter obedience to Jesus in this life. Who says? Jesus. Nobody might tell you that your obedience is not important to Jesus. It's very important to Jesus. Eternal life is for those who obey Jesus, even if it's imperfect. He's not saying you have to perfectly obey me in the sense of you never are wrong about anything. You get stuff wrong all the time. I get stuff wrong all the time. He said, but you know what? In the end, you're going to say, yes, you're chief. Yes, you have the promise no one else has. And yes, I find all my hope in you. And yes, you, only you, Jesus can give it to the Father because you're God. Now, whatever you say, I got it. By the way, is that how our current Christian understanding is? I would argue that people will say oftentimes now. Somehow I'm a Christian, so I'm a follower of Jesus. Sometimes I bet I have eternal life, life with God forever. I want you to know that promise is not for you if your heart stays there. Jesus wants you to know that. But the good news is, if it is, bank on eternal life forever. Now you say, okay. You're telling me, preacher, that Jesus is telling me that I can live a life where I can never truly die in the deeper sense? Yes. If you believe that, let me tell you what that just frees you up for. And I'll end here. Three things. Number one, it's going to change. How do you know life believing in this deathless life? This, this imagine, first of all, it, it leads you to, to change how you read the Bible. If you, in two ways. One is, if you ever just think Jesus is a New Testament phenomenon, you want you to wrestle with this passage. What is this passage saying? What does it mean that Abraham was looking to Jesus? Abraham is an Old Testament figure. And he finds the total fulfillment of everything he hoped for in Jesus. What do I mean by that? Abraham doesn't read the Bible. He didn't read the Bible as he was the, the hero. That he was the main delight. He read his Bible looking to this Messiah. Number one, how you read the Bible. Jesus is all over. Number two, <coughs> it changes what you fear. It should change what you fear. By the way, for us as a church... I know we are asking, we are part of town, we have been some, sometimes like, wait a minute, I have to go to some dangerous places sometimes? I have to do some things that are a little uncomfortable for me sometimes? I may actually be dangerous. To be a Christian is to not to say too dangerous. Okay, that's real danger, but guess what I don't have? I don't have a fear that just overpowers my life. So many of us live a Christian life trying to avoid death. Jesus is already taking care of death, all of it. Temporal death, check mark. You'll get a new body and you'll be with God. Spiritual death, Jesus is saying, you'll never experience that. You'll never be judged. You'll never be separated from me. Not even your sin can separate you from my love. Don't be fearful of any of that. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that how you, do you, are you here today and you say, I light up my life so I don't lose stuff. I don't miss this. Some of us live too comfortable and boring as Christians because we don't know that this is ours or we don't believe it. If Jesus says, you'll never die, go to China. Be a part of something that I'm doing. Your first question should not be, oh, what if something happens? So what? You die. You'll be with God. That's an upgrade. Doesn't mean jump off a building, by the way. Oh, I'm going to be with Jesus. Cleveland is too rough. No, no, no. Our risk should be embedded to this. No one should be as risky as Christians for Jesus' glory. Why? Because we know that this life is 
important in some respects, but it's not ultimate. That should free us to say, look, there's no place we wouldn't go. There's no people we wouldn't seek to get the good news to. You say, well, are you kidding me? Sometimes I might step outside, I might find somebody here on my neighborhood. They, they are a drill drug dealer who have a real case of they have actually killed somebody and they have once been locked up for it. And you want me to talk to that person about the gospel? Yes. What's the worst they can do to you? They might kill me. Okay, you'll be with Jesus. You say, Pastor Ben, you're crazy. No, I'm just telling you that if you get this promise, it calls for stuff like this. No one should be as radical in this life for Jesus because they know that death is just a gateway to something better. And that frees them up for so much other stuff. Number two, how we live. That's good. How we read the Bibles? How we live and then lastly, what we are willing to risk for Jesus. What are you willing to risk for Jesus personally? By the way, I don't want you to ever think that it is somehow more risky to go to Somali, Africa, China, Russia, Antarctica, than it is to go to your neighbors down the hall. To talk to them, to love them. There's nothing more risky about that. Some people love the idea, like, yeah, I'm going to be radical for Jesus. Man, I'm about to go move to Somali, I'm about to go to London. We're about to do this thing, baby. Woo! Okay, let's, let's go down the hall. No, I'm afraid. They're going to look at me funny. Huh? No, what are you willing to risk? If Jesus says, this is what I want you to know, Christian, real Christian, you follow me, you put all your, your stuff on the table for me, and you rest in this promise, your life is not trying to grab hold of this, there's nothing you can say that I wouldn't risk for Jesus. Nothing. Mundane, change the diapers for Jesus, all right? So, I'll see you back there. Mundane, risk, risk, risk your comfortability for Jesus. But then those bigger things, those people we want to talk to, there should be somebody, I'm hoping in redemption, will say, you know what, a drug dealer in East Cleveland now knows the gospel, now knows Jesus, because someone in God's grace was not afraid of anything except that they would say, that they would say to that person, I, I have some fears here, I'm a little scared, I'm not going to lie, but I know that the worst thing that happened to me, I'll be with Jesus, and so I'm, I'm here to love you, I've been free to love you. What are we risking for Jesus? Some of us have risked much. Praise God for that. But Christians are supposed to be the ones, if they get this, that they don't have anything in the reserves. Nothing in the reserves. Why? Because the biggest bully in the room has been destroyed. And we love that. And we believe that. May that be true of us is my prayer. Why? Because you'll say this promise is now starting to control my life. I hold everything loosely except what Jesus says, and I obey him tightly. That is the way to understand you are starting to be gripped by this promise, and that will be yours to enjoy one day. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for the truth it reveals.